You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Iran's president shows both enduring interests and adaptability. Iranian threat actor activity has been reported. Cybersecurity and small to medium businesses. An initial access broker repurposes Conti's old playbook for use against Ukraine. Johannes Ulrich from SANS on scanning for voiceover IP servers. Our guest is Ian Smith from Chronosphere on observability. And Kiev Star as a case study in telco resiliency. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 8th, 2022. SecureWorks counter threat unit researchers have discovered a PlugX malware campaign targeting government officials' computers in Europe, the Middle East, and South America. The malware is embedded in RAR archive files that require the user to click a Windows shortcut file. The decoy documents are political in nature, suggesting that the targets are all government officials. This campaign can probably be attributed to the bronze president threat group that is likely to be operated by the Chinese government. Bronze president has shown an enduring interest in such Chinese neighbors as Vietnam and Myanmar, but it's also been responsive to developing crises and emergent requirements, as seen in the interest it's taken in Ukraine as Russia's invasion has developed. The researchers state, Bronze president has demonstrated an ability to pivot quickly for new intelligence collection opportunities. Organizations in geographic regions of interest to China should closely monitor this group's activities, especially organizations associated with or operating as government agencies. Two reports, one from Mandiant, the other from Microsoft, outline Iranian cyber operations. Mandiant's report describes activity by APT-42, stating, We estimate with moderate confidence that APT-42 operates on behalf of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Intelligence Organization, based on targeting patterns that align with the organization's operational mandates and priorities. APT-42 engages in credential harvesting with a view toward establishing surveillance over its targets, 
principally through installation of Android mobile malware. The initial access is often achieved through closely targeted and protracted spear phishing efforts. APT42 also engages in the development of its own malware. It's not entirely dependent upon commodity tools available in the C2C market. Mandiant summarized the group's targeting as follows, stating, The targeting patterns for APT42 operations are similar to other Iranian cyber-espionage actors, with a large segment of its activity focused on the Middle East region. However, unlike other suspected IRGC-affiliated cyber-espionage groups that have focused on targeting the defense industrial base or conducting large-scale collection of personally identifiable information, APT-42 primarily targets organizations and individuals deemed opponents or enemies of the regime, specifically gaining access to their personal accounts and mobile devices. The group has consistently targeted Western think tanks, researchers, journalists, current Western government officials, former Iranian government officials, and the Iranian diaspora abroad. There are some connections to, or at least overlap with, the Iranian phosphorus subunit Microsoft describes in its own report. DEV-0270, or Nemesis Kitten, is interesting for the ways in which its activities don't obviously align with any Iranian strategic interests. This leads Microsoft to speculate with low confidence that Nemesis Kitten is moonlighting, deploying ransomware in what amounts to either privateering or, perhaps more likely, an APT side hustle. Microsoft concludes, Judging from their geographic and sectoral targeting, which often lacked a strategic value for the regime, we assess with low confidence that some of DEV-0270's ransomware attacks are a form of moonlighting for personal or company-specific revenue generation. These reports come after Albania's decision earlier this week to sever diplomatic relations with Iran over Iran's disruptive attacks against Albanian government infrastructure. Iran has denied any involvement in offensive cyber operations against Albania or anyone else and protested that it's the real victim here. Security firm Vade today released its 2022 SMB Cybersecurity Landscape Report, a survey of 500 IT decision-makers. It found that 79% of those surveyed have agreed that cyber attacks on their organizations have increased, with 87% agreeing that email threats to cybersecurity should be taken more seriously. 91% of respondents said that they are using an MSP for security, with 92% of organizations outsourcing some of their IT operations to an MSP. 94% of those surveyed have high levels of confidence in their organization's ability to defend against cyber attacks, with 51% saying they're completely confident, but 68% agree that their security posture could be more advanced. Google's threat analysis group has discerned a pattern in Russia's war against Ukraine, stating, As the war in Ukraine continues, TAG is tracking an increased number of financially motivated threat actors targeting Ukraine, whose activities seem closely aligned with Russian government-backed attackers. Specifically, it's one threat actor, and its activities overlap with the group that CERT UA tracks as UAC0098. Google says, based on multiple indicators, TAG assesses some members of UAC0098 are former members of the Conti cybercrime group 
repurposing their techniques to target Ukraine. So the pattern is a familiar one, Russia using criminal groups for cyber combat. In conclusion, Google Tag writes, UAC 0098 activities are representative examples of blurring lines between financially motivated and government-backed groups in Eastern Europe, illustrating a trend of threat actors changing their targeting to align with regional geopolitical interests. TAG also gives due credit to other researchers. Its results are consistent with a report IBM published in July and with earlier observations CERT-UA offered in April. Other Conti remnants have attracted counterfire, perhaps from hacktivists or criminal rivals or security services. Servers the gang had used to distribute cobalt strike payloads have been subjected to DDoS attacks that displayed anti-war, anti-Russian messages, including Be a Russian Patriot, 15,000-plus dead Russian soldiers, Stop Putin, and Stop the War. Bleeping Computer reports that the operators behind the DDoS campaign are unknown, stating, It's unclear who is behind these messages. It could be anyone from a security researcher to law enforcement agencies, to a cyber criminal with a grudge for siding with Russia. But it looks like they're keeping the threat actor busy. Kyivstar, the Ukrainian telecommunications provider that serves some 26 million customers, has come under both cyber and kinetic attack and has had to cope with both hijacking and shelling, Politico reports. As much as 30% of the company's infrastructure has been damaged, yet capacity has actually increased during the war. Kyivstar credits, in part, disruption of Russian offensive operations by groups like the IT Army of Ukraine. Kyivstar CEO Alexander Komarov told the press, part of our success is because we are forcing Russians to defense, explaining that the IT Army is creating this hassle on the Russian side, and it's making them more weak because of this. Coming up after the break, Johannes Ulrich from SANS on scanning for voiceover IP servers. And our guest, Ian Smith from Chronosphere, explains observability. Stick with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. 
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. There is growing interest in cybersecurity and the notion of observability, being able to keep tabs on what your systems are doing, being aware when things go wrong, and finding problems in order to fix them. Sounds easy enough, but given the explosive growth of cloud-based infrastructure over the past few years, observability can be a daunting task. For a better understanding of what exactly observability is, I reached out to Ian Smith, field CTO at Chronosphere. Generally collecting a lot of information about uh, the way your applications are performing and also the underlying infrastructure. So it's particularly relevant for companies who are building and operating their own software to serve their customers, whether they be commercial customers or uh, general consumers. And so the ability to collect that information, interpret it, visualize it, and also alert on it so that you can, for example, uh, react to, let's say, an incident where you have a bad performance issue affecting a lot of your customers, or maybe you're looking at things from a longer-term perspective of you need to understand capacity planning uh, so you can plan out, say, your infrastructure rollouts as your business continues to grow. Can you give us some use case examples here? I mean, how do folks actually go about implementing this? Sure. Yeah, so a common approach is to have uh, various sets of data. Um, so commonly, people might be familiar with metrics, so numbers about performance, how much CPU am I using, how much memory is being used, um, how fast is my application responding. You also have logs, you know, the individual things that might be happening inside those applications, things happening at the network level. Uh, and then also traces are starting to become a lot more prevalent as well, uh, particularly in distributed environments where you may be moving from, say, service-orientated architecture uh, into something more akin to cloud-native, where you have a lot of microservices that are all backing one user experience. So, for example, you logging in, um, you need to understand what are all the dependencies, what are all the databases, uh, what are all the different services that might lead to that simple interaction of you logging into your internet banking, uh, and you can imagine for someone like an internet bank, if there was a performance problem where, say, a large portion of their customers were having difficulties logging in or were experiencing slow performance, you want to be able to use the observability data and the tooling that you have with that data to understand why and how to resolve it. Perhaps, you know, what caused it in the first place? Was it a bad deployment? Uh, was it an issue with maybe my underlying uh, provider like an AWS or GCP? And then also when you apply a fix, being confident that you actually resolve the issue as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I, I mean, I can imagine that uh, you know, if you have a customer who's having performance issues, you, know, you coming to them and saying, you know, we've detected there's an issue here and we're working on it, you know, rather than waiting for them to come to you, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good thing in the relationship. Correct. And then obviously it sort of feeds into the overall uh, reliability and uh, you know whether you're beating expectations of the customer. So, if you are a particularly a SaaS 
vendor in today's world, you're providing your software as a service, whether it be to uh, individual consumers or to businesses themselves, you need to be reliable. Everyone thinks about SLAs, everyone thinks about uptime. And so being able to provide that reliability and convincingly uh, back that up and, and be proactive um, can really be very uh, business impacting. And how does an observability platform, you know, get its hooks into the, the system that it's integrated with? Yeah, it's a great question. So in the past, um, this would have been you know, very much a manual effort. I mentioned before, you know, logging, you think about the developer just writing code and, and manually just logging out uh, particular things and, and thinking about those individually as they go along. Um, just like with uh, the advancements in, say, middleware, where you have libraries and packages, those libraries and packages will have come with you know, additional pieces of uh, what we call instrumentation, so the generation of new data. For example, if you're using a database package, uh, as you generate a new database query, maybe it's automatically logged. Maybe it automatically counts the number of queries that you're making and makes that data uh, available. And of course, it depends on uh, what you're using and, and so forth. But uh, the, the industry in general has been moving towards uh, adoption of open standards where there's sort of a consistency about the instrumentation of the data as much as possible. And you're less reliant on perhaps the observability solution to have a very strong opinion on generating that data itself. So if we maybe use uh, an example, uh, APM solutions, which are a form of observability solution that you know, became very popular in, say, the, you know, the mid-2000s, um, they generated all of the data for you. They they basically said, hey, take this little application, put it next to your application, and it will figure out what to collect for you, and we'll present that data to you in a way that we believe is the best. In today's world, what we're really seeing is, um, just like a lot of open source adoption, there are open source standards for this data collection where uh, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to use something like OpenTelemetry and it's going to be very consistent. It's going to generate the data. And then I, as an engineering organization, can pick and choose where to send that data based off which solution gives me the best, most value out of that data. Um, and I'm also owning that instrumentation. If I make changes to it, if I enhance it, I'm not doing this for one particular solution. I'm doing it for any solution I may choose to put that data into. And so there's a greater sense of ownership um, and a greater flexibility for engineering organizations today uh, as compared to, to what has traditionally happened in monitoring and observability. That's Ian Smith from Chronosphere. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, always great to welcome you back. Thanks for having me again, Dave. So we are talking today about voice over IP servers. Uh, what's the latest here? What have you been looking into? Well, um, I have actually ignored it for a long time. Uh, I used to run sort of on my voice over IP phones here in the office, uh, but lately... Everybody has unlimited free calls in their cell phones, so you know, why bother, basically? But mm. um, what I kind of noticed is sort of, particularly when I looked at our uh, D-Shield, Internet Storm Center data, these persistent scans for voice over IP, basically UDP port 5060, the, the SIP protocol that's often being scared, uh, scanned for, 
So I figured, hey, you know, let's have some fun and set up a voice over IP server uh, just to see what will happen. And <laughs> you, you couldn't know, help yourself, could you? I couldn't help myself. No. <laughs> yeah, okay. those poor kids scanning. Um, I, I can't. I have to give them something back for all their sure, effort. Sure, sure. And um, so basically, just you know, what's going to happen there? And um, it was really amazing. I set up a voice over IP server. I didn't really configure it. Uh, so you couldn't really do anything with it. It didn't have like an uplink connectivity, so you couldn't really make phone calls with it. Um, but uh, immediately the number of scans kind of exploded that I had, hmm. sort of uh, from like, um, and I looked at a little bit of larger network here, but from like, you know, 50 or so an hour, it went all the way up uh, to 500, 5,000 scans an hour uh, that uh, that hit that server. And um, what was sort of interesting, there were sort of two types of attacks. Some just tried to make phone calls. Uh, uh, and that sort of showed us a little bit why people are still scanning for it. For example, uh, the number two number that they tried to call uh, was with the Palestinian territories. Uh, and that's, of course, an area of the world where a lot of Western, in particular, phone companies don't necessarily have sort of relationships. So if you have like a free international plan, that may be excluded. So cost really still matters uh, hmm. in those areas. Uh, so that, that was one number. And, and then, of course, you know, if it's Palestinians, the next number up uh, was Chicago. Um, that's, uh, I guess, the Palestine of U.S. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. That's uh, then... Um, scammers most likely because these are the other people that really matter they don't really care about the cost necessarily but um, they're caring about uh, getting kicked off different voice over IP services uh, because you know, people complain about scammers and uh, then a voice over IP service that hosts a lot of scammers is getting a bad reputation with phone companies, not just getting problems, getting service at a reasonable price. So uh, by just using compromised voice over IP servers, they get some anonymity, first of all. And uh, then, of course, you know, if they get kicked off one, well, uh, apparently there are plenty others out there uh, that they can use. Uh, so this, those are kind of the two big motivations here. And just to put in perspective, like I mentioned how the number of scans went up, I also right. looked at uh, password brute forcing. They, they're not trying to use your voice over IP server. They're trying to basically register their extension with your voice over IP server. Hmm. And uh, typically need a username and a password. There were about 20 million attempts uh, during the two days where I ran these experiments. So wow, uh, it's a huge amount of attacks there. Uh, of course, once they register their extension, uh, then uh, they're also able to impersonate your organization. Uh, because now, you know, as far as caller ID is concerned, uh, they're using your phone number to originate the call from. And... Um, that, of course, you know, makes them appear as coming from your organization, which can be used then also for more sophisticated attacks like uh, social engineering. If you get a call now from your network security department, caller ID checks out on your internal voice over IP system, well, you may actually give them your password. Right, right. What do you make of, of how the, the scans exploded that way? I mean, does that, in my mind, that indicates that somebody was sharing this somewhere. Like, hey, hey, everybody, we got a hot one. Or Is there anything to that line of thinking or uh, not? That's possible. What I really more think is that once I started sending responses back, now these particular actors just kept sending follow-up requests. And I since see. it's all UDP, it's very fast. 
So you don't really need a lot of system at big bots that are sort of send 20 million attempts. I see. Okay. So what are your recommendations here for folks who are running their own uh, voice over IP server? What kind of stuff should they make sure they're doing? Well, uh, definitely make sure it's secure, you know, that password brute forcing. Monitor if new extensions are being registered. Uh, they typically use sort of what I would consider default extensions like 100 and uh, 101, I think, was another very common one uh, that they used. So they may more be looking for unused or sort of idle voice over IP servers, which is another big problem. You know, we often have these devices being set up and, hey, they sound like a great idea for a while. And uh, then you realize, hey, it's not really worth the trouble to maintaining it. So you forget about it, but uh, you never really turn it off. Uh, yeah. That's a, a common problem in security, this sort of inventory and sort of these uh, ghost devices. You have sort of haunt your network for years after uh, they have no longer been used. All right. Well, it's interesting stuff. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, 
Protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 